Our scripture reading this morning comes first from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, 22 to 24, and then from Romans 5, verses 12, 18, and 19. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. And then from Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sinned, therefore... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is God's word. All right, thanks, Susan. So good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here, Redeemer City. Uh, we're in a series on Romans. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and this morning we're going to continue in that series. I, I want to say, uh, yeah, Joe was hoping for some more chuckles regarding TED Talks. Uh, and Jamie leaned over and said, there may be some people in here who, who aren't sure what TED Talks are. And that's very true. It's a good point. So if you look up TED Talks, not right now, okay, please, uh, you'll find there's a website and there's, uh, they're, they're very popular things uh, out there uh, on a, a host of different subjects and topics. They're all about 12 to 14 minutes long. So they're not sermons. Almost got it. I almost got it. Rick and, Rick and Josh laughed at me, which is good. Um, but uh, anyway, what, what we're trying to do with Ted Sin, not the originator of TED Talks, but the originator of these workshops, uh, is if you hate reading the Bible, please come to these workshops. 
if the, reading the Bible is really hard for you, if you're struggling to, to get on board with what we're doing, if it doesn't make sense to you, if you're struggling to enjoy it, or on the flip side, if you absolutely love it, please come to these workshops. There's going to be four of them this year. So we're asking for eight hours of your year. Okay? Eight hours of your entire year. And I promise you, uh, they'll be worth those eight hours. Uh, they will inspire you. They will challenge you. Uh, they'll be educational and a whole host of other things. But one of the things we're convinced of is if we're going to get the churches planted that we want to get planted, we talk about Renew Polk a lot, and most of you know we're part of a, a church planting network. If that's going to happen, we got to have disciples, right? Because... Uh, this wouldn't be paid for if it were just me up here standing and there was nobody here listening, with the exception of my wife, because I forced her to come or something, right? We have to have disciples to fill the church buildings or to make up the churches that the planters are planting. And in order to do that, you got to have people who are excited uh, about the means that God has put in place to learn about him and grow in our relationship with him. And the scriptures are at the top of that list, Okay. So uh, just my unashamed uh, commercial there for the TED Talks, okay? So if you will, look at the outline. Uh, it's in your worship folder on the insert. One side is the scripture Susan read. On the other side is the, the outline. And what we're going to do this week is take a closer look at what Drew kind of gave us a, a bird's eye view of last week, talked about the first Adam, the second Adam, gave us a framework through which to view uh, Jesus's work and our union to him in light of his work. This weekend, we're going to drill down a little bit closer to look at the results of the first man's rebellion, which is Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So really, that, 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 uh, that verse, we're going to look at the results of that and then how the second man, Jesus Christ, addresses those results, how he solves them, how he heals them. Uh, and so that's what you have before you there. There's the twin pandemics, sin and death. Uh, secondly, the realities of their impact on us, that is we live lies, we, we are deceived, self-deceived, and then we spend our time deceiving others as we live east of Eden. There's a phrase uh, some of you may have heard before, uh, John Steinbeck wrote a, a, a novel many years ago called East of Eden, but it's really a picture of what it is like for us to live outside of Eden. As you read, or as Susan read from Genesis 3, which we'll get into in a minute, the reality of living east of paradise, which is uh, in the Bible code for judgment, right? Wind that comes from the east is a judging wind. Living in the east is usually not a good thing, Okay. Um, that's nothing against people that live east of here or in the Middle East or the Far East or any of that, okay? I'm talking about in the Bible, uh, the, the, the way that that code word is used. And then in light of that, I see here on at least my insert, we have Roman numeral one and then we have two Roman numeral twos. So there really is no third point today. It's news to me, uh, but hey, whatever. Um, but lastly and thirdly, how does Jesus heal the pandemics of sin and death? And we're going to look at the death of death and the satisfaction of sin. And then what kind of people we should be as a result, okay? So those three things. First, the twin pandemics. There are two problems that affect every human being or that afflict every human being. 
Uh, and I chose the word pandemic because the word comes from two words, pan, two Greek words, pan and demos. Pan meaning everywhere or all, demos meaning people. So it's typically used to describe a disease that afflicts many, many people over a wide geographical area. Well, in this case, we're talking about something that afflicts every human being no matter where they live, okay? In fact, uh, speaking to non-Christians, if you're here, you don't consider yourself a Christian or you're unsure, um, these are two topics that arise regularly in conversation that you have with coworkers, with neighbors, you may not use these words sin and death. I'm sure you probably use the term death a lot as you reflect on someone suffering from a disease, a family losing a loved one, you personally losing a friend. Death is very real, and it's a regular topic of conversation. For Christians in the room, I, I want you to know as you talk with neighbors and coworkers who don't share your faith commitment these are two conversation points that are going to arise again and again. And how you describe their origin, how you describe our lives in light of them, and your life as a Christian in light of them is critical as you witness to uh, your non-Christian friends, uh, neighbors, coworkers, and so forth. Look carefully at uh, Romans 5.12. It's on the bottom of the insert, or if you are following along in... Uh, your, your Bible. I don't have the page number for the Pew Bible there. I'm sorry. Uh, but just take a look at the insert. Closely at verse 12, Paul says, sin came into the world through the man's rebellion and death followed as a result. So he seems to connect the one with the other. So what happens is sin spreads and death along with it. Okay. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all because all sinned. So there's a connection here. And to show how intertwined these problems are, I want to ask this question. Well, two questions. First, what would happen if we solved the problem of death, but we didn't solve the problem of sin and anger and unkindness? What would life be like? Now, I know that you're used to this room, and this room, when you walk in this room, you think, I can only sing, but when the guy up at the front starts talking, I can't talk back. That's like illegal or something. It, there's a rule, an unwritten rule. So nobody ever talks when uh, we're up here and we ask questions or we want some feedback. So unfortunately, you're not going to give me any feedback. But what would life be like? What would life be like if we solved the problem of death, but we didn't solve the problem of sin and anger? Well, everybody would be angry and they'd never die. Sounds great, right? Number two, what would happen if we solved the problem of sin and anger and unkindness, but not the problem of death? Well, we'd all be kind to one another, but there would be this looming shadow. We would all know it's going to end at some point, right? The kindness, the, 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 uh, uh, the patience and, and, and so forth, all of those wonderful virtues would eventually end. One commentator says this. And I thought this was great. I wanted to read it to you. If, if we solved only the problem of death and other physical suffering, then we'd live forever, getting crankier and more self-absorbed by the minute. Imagine living forever. Imagine living forever with bigotry, racism, and war, a living hell. Sounds awful, doesn't it? 
On the other hand, if we solved only the problem of sin, then we'd all be really nice to one another, but death would haunt every relationship, and our love for one another would only increase our pain. So there's a problem there with both. You've got to solve both. You can't have one solved without the other because they both are on parallel tracks running through human existence and afflicting every person alive. Sin is, in essence, going your own way instead of God's. It's rebellion. It's law-breaking. And if the Bible's teaching is true, and we believe that it is, sin is a cancer you're born with. It's not one you contract later in life. One writer put it like this. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God. And it does all this disrupting and resisting in a number of intertwined ways. Sinful life is partly is a partly depressing, partly ludicrous caricature of genuine human life. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's the problem. You know it, and I know it. Your non-Christian friends and neighbors and coworkers know it. And everybody else that we've never heard of knows it. And then there's death. Death, according to the Bible, is the outflow of sin. Not just physical death, but I want you to understand, too, a spiritual and emotional death. There is a ruin. There is a brokenness. There's a misery. I looked up, by the way, has anybody ever seen the movie Misery? Oh, my gosh. I had never seen it. I know it's pretty well known. Stephen King wrote it. Uh, Kathy Bates was in it and I think won an Oscar or something. But golly, I started reading the summary of it. And I thought about, maybe I'll use it as an illustration. Nope, not going to do that. It's bad. It's real bad. Okay? Misery. (laughs) That's all I need to say, right? The problem is death is a normal part of living in an abnormal world. Yet it's, it's ugly and awful. And I have news for you. There are no good deaths. Right? You may have heard that before. Somebody would say, well, you know, I mean, they, they died a good death. No. There are no good deaths. Death is an enemy that every person faces. So how do these things impact us? And this is why uh, Susan read from Genesis 2 and 3, and I would direct your attention to the insert there, or you can follow along in your Bible. And I really want to spend uh, the, the, the m- most part of the sermon, not the TED Talk, uh, on Genesis 2 and 3 because they really help us understand the impact of sin and death and are living in light of those things. How do they impact us now? Genesis 2 and 3 help us understand why we are the way we are. Paul says sin enters the world through Adam's disobedience. That is to say... It wasn't part of the original design of creation. It's an intrusion. You know what I mean by an intrusion? When something intrudes, it doesn't belong where it is, right? You can say yes. Yes, thank you. Okay, good. It doesn't belong where it is. It's an unnatural phenomenon. It doesn't fit. Now, we didn't read it, but remember, God declares everything good once he's finished with the work. He offers the whole of the garden to the man and the woman with one exception. And what is it? You can eat from every tree with one exception, right? And if you eat that tree, what will happen? 
you'll die. Not just you'll die, you'll surely die. And that is the first mention of death in the Bible. You realize that's on page two? Page two, okay? Page two of the story, first word, first mention of death. Up until that point, there's only creation. There's only life forming, flourishing, goodness. And then God says, if you do what I say, and this is part of the reason we use the call to worship from Deuteronomy 30. It's Moses many years later saying, I'm offering you life and death. If you live the way God says to live, life will work. If you don't, life will fall apart. Um, God says, if you do what I say, if you follow my words, life will work right. But if not, it'll disintegrate and death will come. See, God designed the world. That's the, that's the big word. That's the important word. That's the word to underline, write down your notes, put it on your tablet or your phone or wherever you're keeping things. God designed the world. And he invented it. He designed it to run a certain way. That is, on him. And if you try and run the world on something other than him, it won't work. Okay? Has anybody lately tried to put the gas oil mix that you use for your weed eater into the lawnmower? Try it. I dare you. And then try to get your lawnmower to work. It won't work. It won't work. And for all of us, that's kind of a, well, of course not. Well, then why do we think sin's going to work? Right? Now look down to chapter 3. What's the lead up? to the decision of death. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Here's how the apostle James describes it. James chapter 1. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it was conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the progression. So the woman's desire, the man's desire, these give birth to sin. Well, their desire for what exactly? To know what God knows, to be like God. That's what the serpent promises them, right? He creates a doubt. Joe referred to this earlier. God's holding out on you, Adam and Eve. He's not for you. If he was really for you, he'd let you eat of any tree you wanted. Why is he just prohibiting you from eating this one tree? Because he knows. He knows. When you eat of it, you'll become like who? Like him. And he's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to become like him. He's hiding what it's like to be him. Don't you want to know? Don't you want to know? Use of all the other trees isn't good enough. What's so special about that one tree? Well, what do they do? They sin. And I say that, I say they sin, you know what I mean, but what is it that they actually do? They insert their will in the place of God's will. They say, no, we're, we're gonna try it out. We think we know. We think we know better than him. Well, when they do that, what happens? What does the servant, or excuse me, what does the serpent say? Verse Four. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Well, does that happen? Shocker, but no. 
He's a liar. And what God promises begins in verse 7. It begins in the very next verse. As soon as it happens, I didn't print it for you there. I'm so sorry. That's my bad completely. But let me read it to you. So this happens. They do this. They eat. And then what? The eyes of both were opened. Well, that sounds actually kind of a good thing, right? When we say that to one another nowadays, open your eyes. What are you, closed-minded? Open your eyes. No. Actually, the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves uh, loincloths. So what happens in verse 7? Well, here are some of the things that happen. Shame, hiding, fear, blame-shifting. Anybody done those lately? I'm an expert, particularly at the blame shifting. All strategies that you and I continue to employ daily in dealing with our sinfulness, all strategies we employ actually to deny that there's really a problem. I don't have a problem, right? What's our favorite thing to do when somebody says, when Jamie says to me, I think you're angry? How do I respond to that? You're absolutely right. I'm so sorry. Nope. Usually, I say something along the lines of, or actually, I say exactly this. I'm not angry. What's your, what, what's your problem? Well, your body is saying something different. Well, I don't know what you're looking at, but I feel fine, right? So, we begin to experience death. Death of a closeness, death of a fellowship, death of... Uh, death of of fearlessness, death of openness, death of of peace in God's presence, all things they had prior to Genesis 3, 7. We lie and deceive, we cover up, we pose all ways in which we try to cover our guilt. And ultimately, look at the end of Genesis 3. Look at the end of Genesis 3. God drove out the man and the woman to wander east of Eden where they would eventually physically die, and they do in the very next chapter. So what he said, and maybe the way they heard it, came true. And of course, what the serpent told them did not. And he's still lying to you and me. You know that. He's still lying. Even though his head has been trounced, even though he's flailing around, he's still lying to you and I. Now, if you slowly walk through that text of Genesis, it should serve to reinforce how helpful the first few chapters of the Bible are. They really, really are so helpful. I was telling Drew this a couple days ago. I said, you know, sitting with these verses, sitting with these chapters, just, man, it's just a reminder of how profound, how, how, how profound they explain the psychology of sin. They explain why the world is the way it is and why we are the way we are. They are stunning in their explanation of these things, but they're also stunning in their explanation of the effects of the death that follows. See, sin and death pollute everything. And the historic catechisms of the church try to capture this in two ways. They say, because of sin, you and I are guilty. And because of death, you and I are ruined, we're miserable, we're broken, right? And everyone lives with this this nagging sense of guilt. So how do we try and deny that? How do, we, how do we carry out this nagging sense of guilt? Well, individually, we blame shift. We practice self-justification. We lie. As a society, we do things like, it's more education. It's more legislation. 
It's more conversation. Uh, we think these things will help alleviate sin rather than calling the problem what it is. No, sin. Sin. We're guilty, right? Everyone lives in need of repair as well. Everyone lives with a nagging sense of guilt, but everyone lives with a need of repair, running from, running from destruction. Well, how do we try and deny the problem of death? Well, 21st century American culture is, for example, the opposite of England in the 1800s. And this, this helps kind of explain this. The so-called Victorian era was obsessed with death, what it meant to die well and being prepared for it, but they were very quiet about human sexuality. Well, we, on the other hand, are very in-your-face about sexuality, right? And yet we go to great lengths to escape or try to cheat death. We modify our bodies as we age. Consumerism has fixated us on material wealth, on the here and now. And so we don't feel the freedom to discuss death. We all know it's coming, but we don't have a freedom to talk about it. Because there's such this fixation on the material world, on what we can see and touch and taste and feel here and now. Let me give you an illustration of this. A hospital in Australia had an intensive care doctor and nurse uh, with federal grant money trained several hundred volunteers uh, to talk with patients about their preferences in the event of death. Uh, what would their preferences be? Uh, how would they like for things to get communicated and, 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 and what to be done in light of that? Amazingly, the families and the patients were so grateful. They loved the opportunity to talk about these things because it was freeing. But six months after the funding ran out, the doctor and the nurse went back through the same units of intensive care in the same hospital, and they found no one was having these conversations anymore. Because we naturally want to avoid it, right? I'm so grateful in our country for hospice and grief counseling services that are provided, uh, many times free of charge to people, because there is that inherent humanity that needs to deal with that. So I'm grateful for those that work in those fields. Well, <clears throat> there's two quick ways I want to apply this and then finish up with uh, the third uh, point there. I want to talk about two ways in which this impacts us. First is pollution or a gradual corruption or a breakdown. On the one hand, sin spoils things. It corrupts them like rust slowly, progressively, over time, and yet sin also begets more and more sin. It reproduces as it spreads its corruption. St. Augustine says, because of Adam's sin, we've all been infected with a canker, okay? If you're from Central Florida, lots of citrus, or at least there used to be, uh, and, and canker was one of the things that really took out a lot. This was before the greening uh, problem, but it, but, it, but it took out a lot of trees, he says we've been infected with a canker in our roots that leads to a devastation of this second and endless death. Similar, similar to, uh, to canker, sin kills because it reproduces. And as it multiplies, it impacts everyone and everything it touches. So uh, you may have seen some uh, work being done out here on the side. We had some metal pipes break this week and the, the water main broke. Uh, and we got it repaired. But uh, after it was repaired, I picked up and I noticed the rust corrupting the metal, disintegrating these pipes. I don't know how old they are. But you can see the rust. And you can see the pipes beginning to disintegrate. And I want you to hear, rust exists because of Genesis 3. 
Those pipes are disintegrating because of Genesis 3. Or a terrible eye disease called macular degeneration. Uh, my grandfather had it. It's, it's a really awful disease. And it's so named because it slowly corrupts your eyes and breaks down your ability to see. Our bodies break down and become more frail. We are susceptible to and we succumb to disease because of Genesis 3. Sin spoils things. Sin disintegrates things. Not only that, sin is folly. Sin is wrong, but let's be honest, it's also dumb. Right? I mean, you say, parents, you say it to your kids sometimes. Well, at least we do. <laughs> you may not say that, but uh, Jamie and I did. That was dumb. Why did you do that? Right? It's, it, sin is missing the target because we choose the wrong target. Sin's listening to an older, wiser person's advice and then ignoring it. Right? Fools are often in error, but they're never in doubt, are they? Fools don't live in reality, so they attempt to reinvent it. And sin causes us to become so committed to going our own way, we become dumb enough to believe we can actually make it work that way. It's, it's part of why parenting is so hard and why you begin sometimes to bang your head up against the wall. I've told them this. How many times I need to tell them this? And then I hear the voice of my heavenly father. Hello. McFly, I've told you that too, right? Same thing, same thing. Sin spoils things, but sin is also dumb. So what are we gonna do? Well, uh, the great news is we have the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel, which results in the death of death and the satisfaction of sin. That's where I wanna end. And I wanna illustrate this by, by asking this question. If my son, Ethan, were to... I'm not saying he has, not saying he will, okay? This is just an illustration. If he steals a family friend's car and then wrecks it, what kind of trouble is he in? And please don't say big. Of course, he's in big trouble. But what kind of trouble is he in? How many problems are created by him stealing the car and then wrecking it with him in it? Okay, and why I'm asking that is, of course he's in trouble, but it's, it's so much more than, than being in trouble with the law, right? What about the car? What about his body? It's a way to express you and I've got two problems. We've got a guilt problem and a misery problem. We're in trouble and we're wrecked. You can't talk about the one without the other. But here is the great news. Jesus handles the judicial problem, the law problem for us. He takes our trouble. He pays the ticket. If I break the law, if I run a stop sign, okay, a debt is created, a payment is demanded to satisfy that debt, and if I make the payment, which in some cases might mean jail time, then my guilt, as it were, is wiped away in that sense. But the Bible says we're not just guilty from one sin, but we're guilty from a lifetime of sin. In fact, it says we're born guilty. We're born guilty because, as Drew pointed out last week, we're in Adam. And you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ satisfies your debt, my debt, 
on the cross. The punishment of the sword that guarded the entrance to the garden in Genesis 3, at the end of chapter 3, it's why I had us read it. He drove out the man, and at the east, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You know what? That sword fell. You know when it fell? On the cross, right into Jesus' heart. Like a heat-seeking missile, right into him. So now, where's the tree of life? It's wide open. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians that God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our sins by canceling the record of what? Debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we all hear the stories about people that call Dave Ramsey and they talk about you know, $45,000 and what do they say? What, we paid off all this? Debt, now we're debt free and they jump up and down and you, know, you see YouTube videos of them and it's really cool. Okay, well, what if somebody called into him and said, to be in Christ means I'm guilt-free? Man, how about that for good news? How about that for jumping up and down, right? But Christianity is such good news because it doesn't stop there. Remember, what about the car? The car's wrecked. You're broken, too. So you've still got death to deal with. The man and the woman were exiled from the garden and both eventually dies. Well, Jesus not only pays the ticket, he not only takes your trouble, he heals the ruin. He, he restores the wrecked vehicle in the resurrection. One writer says, he entered death's gaping maw. Do you know what a maw is? I'd never heard the word before, but I thought it was cool. So of course I was gonna use it in my sermon. So you'd think I was cool too, but I'm, I'm gonna define it for you. Uh, a maw is the mouth of a greedy person or the jaws of a voracious animal. He entered death's gaping maw. That's a great way to describe death. And yet Jesus looked right into the eyes of death. And what did he do? He punched it in the throat and rose triumphant from the grave. So now, and I might get a little emotional because of a particular situation that, that we have uh, family in our church. Um, if you're in Christ, that's not the end of the story. In fact, death, death can be mocked. And I, I love this because I love mocking. It's one of my spiritual gifts. And so Paul mocks death. You don't see it. We didn't print it for you in the assurance of pardon, but right before it, if you go back in 1 Corinthians 15, he mocks death. Our assurance says the victory is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of the most wonderful words in the Bible are in Revelation where the Lord says, behold, look, pay attention. I'm making all things new. Notice it's already happening, but he doesn't say I have made all things new. It's not complete. The shadow of death is still haunting us, but the power of death has been abolished. We are people marked by sadness, and yet we're full of hope. Because you see, cancer still disintegrates the bodies of our family members and our friends, but cancer doesn't win. And, and, and my friend knows that. She believes that. I've heard her say it. A new creation has begun. It's on its way, 
in increasing measure, spring is coming, winter is fading. That is the promise of the resurrection. Christianity alone solves these two pandemics. Christianity alone can produce, because of that, people who are courageous and humble as they face life, courageous and humble as they face life, and full of peace and hope as they face death. Don't you want to be a person like that? Don't you want your family and friends to be like that? Don't we want our city to be like that? I want to plant churches full of people like that. And only the gospel can create. And only faith in Christ, being wedded to him, and and knowing your victory is through him, can produce that too. So let's pray and ask him to do that among us. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have handled uh, both our guilt problem and our ruin problem. That you have satisfied the sin debt that's been created. As we sang earlier, we stood underneath a debt we could never afford. And what did you do? Your mercy's more. What did you do? You went willingly to stand underneath the sword, have it drop like a heat-seeking missile right into the heart of your soul that you would absorb our sin for us. But not only that, you went into the depths of hell itself. You punched death in the throat. You walked right back out. And you said, let's get on with it. I'm making all things new. This is a new creation. And so I pray that you would produce in us, as your people, great courage and great humility as we face life. But that we would also be a people characterized by great peace and great hope as we face death. Because we know you have handled them for us. And now in you, we can handle them too. Thank you for that great work. Continue to increase our faith in you as a result of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If that's true, uh, hold your hands out and receive this benediction. Um, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.